This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run, and the sixth edition is available and out for anybody uh, who wants to get an updated new copy. Uh, we'll be joined by Michael McClary uh, of Valmark. We're going to talk a lot about uh, some strategies that, that Michael and I have worked on together. Uh, please note, I'm a resident representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not not those of Wizard Tree affiliates. Professor, uh, we've got you know continued moves in the market. We've got the Fed speakers, a lot more Fed narrative coming out now. You've got Bullard, who was just in her show making headlines yesterday. Uh, I'm curious all, all your views on what's happening here in the markets. I, I honestly don't know what world um, Bullard lives in. Uh, when he says, oh, now I, uh, I'm now more hawkish than ever. I mean, what dad is he looking at that's telling him that things are, uh, that prices are going up? Uh, I, I, I don't know. Uh, yes, and we've heard Daly say this. It's, it's, a, it's a common theme. Uh, you know, just reviewing the week, uh, Tuesday we had a very good producer price index, um, well below expectations. Um, market rallied on that, but then the Fed did seem to ignore it. Uh, continue to come in hawkish, um, uh, and that disturbed the market. I think prevented it from rallying further. I, the the actual real data is is very mixed. We tell sales was pretty good. We have to realize that is nominal data. So how much is inflation? That has to be determined later um, um, when we get that data. Um, uh, uh, we have not seen, uh, you know, in any immediate softening of the labor market. Now, it's not like it's running hot, uh, but uh, um, it's uh, jobless claims, initial jobless claims is usually the first to begin its upward path. And it's just sort of been meandering uh, more than anything else. Uh, I, I, uh, we, we had had some very weak reports. Philadelphia Business Outlook report, which is, uh, you know, a very early report for the month of uh, November, um, uh, showed a drop, a big drop. Uh, the National Association of Home Building uh, uh, dropped again to 33. Um, it hit its high in February, and this is the sharpest um, eight-month drop in its history about what's going in in housing. Now, housing starts were okay. Home sales were a little weak, but Okay. I should mention the leading index of economic activity. Now, that's not my favorite index, but it came in way below expectations um, Friday morning, eight-tenths of a percent lower uh, with a revised lower uh, number um, um, uh, for the previous month. That eight-tenths, by the way, is the worst number for the leading index since the pandemic in March of 2020. So uh, with the manufacturing index and everything else, I do see softening coming in, but not not so far uh, in the la- uh, in the labor market, um, uh, and um, 
I think you'll need a turn in that labor market uh, to try to convince more Fed members that they should uh, ease off. Uh, I, I still think that when that data comes, that we would get 50 basis points in in December. But I think that whether it's 50 or 75, the most strongest statement is that we are in a pause and assessing what the uh, and and not even uh, teeing up a January or necessarily even a March index. They're not going to rule it out, but not necessarily teeing it up. I think that the the accompanying statement is going to be much important. But the, hey, that's uh, you know that's more than three weeks into the future. Yeah, it's interesting. They uh, they want to keep at least the the narrative will stay what it is until they change. But uh, it, 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 if you were to say where you think they they end up at this cycle, is it uh, are we going over or under five at the end of this cycle? Are, are we uh, they going to get past five? I think it's under five because I think they're going to come to realize that the economy and, and inflation is um, especially inflation is much lower than. Uh, it is, of course, uh, we're not going to get it next Tuesday. It's the last Tuesday of the month. We get another case shower. Uh, but the apartment indicators and the uh, housing indicators are all showing that decline, despite the fact that the Bureau of Labor Statistics number is, is showing that increase. And, you know, that, that discordant view of uh, the labor market is, uh, you know, what I've been criticizing the Fred about. And uh, and for the markets, it's all about earnings next year. It's well, the Fed and earnings are the two the two drivers. Oh yeah, I mean, well, Fed and earnings, I think, are always the drivers. <laughs> are all the? I mean, I think I think the Fed is more in focus. I think the market said, when is the Fed going to get it? Uh, I think that's it. Uh, we'll deal with earnings then. Um, the longer it takes for the Fed to get it, the lower the earnings will be. Uh, you know, I mean. I, they 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 sort of uh, go together. I mean, if the Fed gets it uh, by December and does say we're going to do a pause and take a look, I mean, there's a chance. I'm not, you know, I'm not. That's my specialty is not being an economic forecaster. I don't think anyone does that really good. But I think that then there would be a chance of, uh, you know, avoiding a recession next year. As you know, I, I pointed out how strange the data is this year with four and a half million new workers and no GDP estimates. I don't know what I'm getting discordant GDP estimates for fourth quarter. Um, uh, the um, uh, Atlanta Fed seems to be thinking it's three to 4%, but many of the services I follow is uh, in the 1% range. I think uh, we just don't have enough data clearly. Uh, and, and again, fourth, fourth quarter is often determined by what happens between Thanksgiving and New Year's with the Christmas even. So we're not there yet. Uh, to really to judge how strong is the consumer going to be in spending for uh, this fourth quarter. So I think that's, you know, fourth quarter estimates are really going to be extremely wide at this particular point. Michael, you and I are going to go into a lot of these issues. Uh, do you have any questions for the professor before we uh, before we let him go? Uh, do you have any thoughts, Professor, on the longer term impact of this you talk about the pause but but how long of a pause do you think is out there um, obviously data driven but um well I, I mean you know if, if they pause and the data goes as i think and they see the slowdown and prices go down then then they're going to start thinking about should i decrease there won't be you know the pause is not a pause and in increasing in my opinion it's a pause and then it'll start decreasing you know i've even thrown out the fact that i wouldn't be shocked to see a two percent fed funds by the end of 2023 I wouldn't be shocked. I'm not, I'm not making that prediction. Um, I'm, I'm just saying 
we see a significant slowdown, that's where it should be. Um, and, um, and if we see significant deflation, that's where it should be. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm banking on the data confirming that. Well, we, we will actually see. Take a look what happened, you know, again, with the, the hawkish uh, Fed news, what's happening with the commodity prices uh, even today. I mean, oil is uh, really taking it on the channel down almost 4%. WTIR is $78. Uh, a barrel, um, uh, you know, uh, commodity prices are continuing to come down. Uh, you know, I, you know, when I, I, you know, I, I, I just don't know what Bullard is talking about. And so what he's, what he's seeing me, me you know, uh, is, uh, for, uh, is mandates of further tightening in the Fed funds. Well, let's hope they are paying attention to the professor and uh, and they watch. Uh, you were ahead of the curve on the way up. Now, ahead of the way of the curve on the way down. Let's see well, how let's, quickly. Let's see if we're, I'm, I'm ahead on the curve on the way down. Are, are we on for next, is Thanksgiving week uh, uh, an off week for us? I think we are going to take a holiday break uh, for the holidays, but we will be back uh, with actually some Fed speakers, uh, I believe, on, on the following week. So we'll get to talk yeah. to them. Oh, we're going to, and, they, and they're special. They, they've, they've actually worked on housing indices, right? The Cleveland so Fed gonna, has. So two weeks, we're going to have a, uh, we're going to have a lot of uh, extra data uh, coming through. So. <laughs> It'll be good to get your comments and their comments on what's happening in inflation. Uh, thank you for joining okay. us to start the show, Professor. Have a good holiday and into the weekend. Thank you, Michael and Jeremy. Uh, thanks, Professor. So we are going to turn the conversation to Michael McClary, a friend and and longtime uh, a client from Valmark Financial Group. We've been working with Michael on on some on, on an ETF. Uh, we've licensed one of his indexes um, for an ETF, uh, the the Global Target Range Fund, uh, and they've got an index that we'll talk a little bit about for uh, how they came up with the concept and that. But but Michael, you guys have now celebrated a twenty year anniversary of running your Tops ETF program. Congratulations on that. Talk a little bit about. The history there. Well, thanks, Jeremy. I, it's amazing. Twenty years, and I haven't aged a bit, right? Um, but uh, it's uh, we started in this business. Uh, I remember. I think there was 120 ETFs in the marketplace when I started managing ETF portfolios. And to see where this has gone, we always believed in the concept, and we always believed in the thesis of of ETFs for low cost and transparency and, and liquidity, taxation, all the benefits of ETFs. But to see where we've we've gotten. In the last 20 years is really amazing and um we have consistently uh focused and I, I think this is important on improving every single day and that's one thing i look back on the last 20 years is, is always looking for new ideas um and i think some of the things we'll talk about here in a little bit are in line with that so you you heard a little bit of the professor's view outlook for inflation the economy where where is your view on all things fed inflation how uh how wrong do you think the professor is? How right do you think he is? Where, do you, where, where are we? Well, I hope he's right. I really, really hope he's right, because um, <clears throat> that's why I asked the question about how long is the pause. And, you know, the, the difficult part, to your point, Jeremy, is that we've heard a lot of different comments come out from different Fed representatives. Um, but inflation is everything right now. And we saw that uh, last Thursday, you know, the CPI numbers, Tuesday at the PPI numbers that you know, just marginally better numbers can really have an, an unbelievable amount of impact on equities. Um, but we do, 
focus on the fact that if we look out of the next 12 to 36 months, that the Fed is really concerned about stopping too early and creating a double top in inflation. We saw that happen in the 70s, I believe. And then you know, we saw Volcker handle it differently in the 80s, you know, where he's seen as a hero because it did take him several years and, and two recessions to do it, but he did ultimately lick inflation. And so I, I am concerned uh, that they will not start lowering rates at some point here. And, and how how economy will stay around, even if they're sitting in a pause environment for a long period of time. So as we're looking at our portfolios, we're we're kind of building in all those scenarios, Jeremy, and trying to think about what it looks like if they continue to raise rates, what it looks like if they pause, and what it looks like if they if they decide to you know ultimately start reducing rates by the end of 2023, like like uh, Dr. Siegel had mentioned. So um, we're just trying to play through all those scenarios. It is. It is. It's very interesting, and and how quickly the tables turned from you know last year them saying there was no inflation that was all going to be transitory, and and how how little hikes most of the people there thought, and now obviously these mega hikes, and, and, and clearly we're like later in the cycle. Although Bullard saying it gets to seven is is sort of way out there, um, but he thinks five to five and a quarter minimum, which. Siegel calling the under on that is it's a pretty quick pivot to come to their their narrative of just based on what all that Powell is saying will they come that quickly it's very interesting I was I was on a panel yesterday and Katie Stockton who's a market technician threw out 525 on the 10 year which is which is where she sees it going or where it could go in some of these sort of market technicians the, Siegel said on CNBC last week he thought four. We may not get above four again. Uh, do you have a view on? You know, we've had this very inverted curve, uh, as you see that dynamic of of all this. Uh, and I, do you are you guys overrate duration? Are you thinking about how? How do you think about all that? So we've been very fortunate. Let me, let me talk first of all about a little bit about Powell's thought process from what we understand it to be. <clears throat> I think this plays into duration targeting. So Powell. You know, this, there were some notes from a 2013 Fed meeting that we were reviewing with somebody recently, and Powell had told the committee that, you know, to be ready for, you know, if they continue to go on with QE3, to be ready for a 20 to 30 percent correction, and that the Fed would just have to tough it out. So those are the, that's the type of thought process from somebody, you know, in his role, of, and in Powell specifically in his, his personality, that he realizes, and he, he mentioned this in his Jackson Hole speech in August, that pain might be part of this. Also, yeah. he famously keeps a copy of the Keeping At It book from Paul Volcker on his desk. And he talks about all the time keeping at it and keeping at it. And, and um, he's really looking to set in place his legacy. And his legacy, I, I think he sees himself as a failure if he does hit that double top in inflation. So that's where I think that they're going to err on the side of, of keeping rates higher for longer. As far as where they stop, I'm more focused on how long they keep them higher than exactly where they stop. Because I think to that point, Jeremy, somewhere in the five to five and a quarter range makes sense to me. Um, economically, you think that you have to get to that level to start lowering inflation. Um, obviously, we understand that when they raise the Fed funds rate, there can be a long wall before you start seeing an impact in inflationary rates as well. So it's an imperfect science. Um, and I think that they're probably going to at least go to five, is my opinion. And um, I think they're going to stay there for a while. I, I would I hate to differ from from Dr. Siegel, and I hope he's right. I, I, I'm betting against myself, but uh you know, it's difficult. Now, as far as duration targeting, we did uh, shorten the duration of our fixed income portfolios um, coming into this. We were a little early. Uh, we thought that was fine. Uh, as we looked at the overall risk, we just didn't feel like there was enough yield we were getting um, and paid for for the risk you were taking to go out further on the duration curve. 
So we were fortunate to uh, shorten our duration. We also used a lot of TIPS bonds, uh, some um, floating rate, uh, investment grade debt, uh, di- international bonds, different tools like this to help really spread out our, our fixed income risk. And by doing that, um, we've had pretty substantial uh, outperformance versus the Ag Bond Index this year. And actually, the performance has been so good versus the Ag Bond that we're now outperforming over 15 years versus the Ag Bond on our fixed income component. So that's another lesson, you know, as we talk to investors about, you know, we think about short-term moves, some of these things take a long time to play out. And, and you look at it and you say 15 years ago, Michael, you know, where do you want to be positioned? And where we've ended up being positioned is, is worked out. It just, it, you know, you're going to have different cycles and you're going to have different, different time periods. But it's, it's really when, when uh, stuff hits the fan, uh, you want to make sure your risk is, is in the right buckets. That, that that feels like my experience with value and high dividends. <laughs> you know, we, we I've been working with Siegel for twenty years, like you've been working with Valmark for twenty years, and yeah. uh, we did the book in '06 or '05, saying you know dividends were this good long term strategy. And then fifteen years you had a growth market, and finally you got dividends coming back with a vengeance in like two thousand basis points ahead of the S and P this year. So it's it's I, I I can commiserate with you have things that you think are going to work, and it takes a very long time before you get that uh, thing to play out. But no, it's been amazing what's been happening in the bond market. So I, I guess sort of wrapping up all this Fed inflation and, and views, um, any other any other comments on, on the Fed dynamics and the yeah, changing nature? Something's real important there. We're spending a lot of time, Jeremy, looking at the Fed uh, securities holdings, and they have gathered a significant amount of, uh, of mortgage-backed securities with relatively long duration. So they've got, um, you know, about uh, a big a big push towards that, and they've got treasuries in the shorter end of the curve. And the problem is, is the Fed has, to my understanding, never really sold securities. They've always let things run off. And if they're going to continue to reduce the size of their balance sheet, they have to sell some mortgage-backed securities. And what's that going to do to the bond market? And so... My focus predominantly, a big part of, of my focus in the last 20 years has been on capital markets themselves. Obviously, a person like Dr. Siegel is incredibly um, well-versed in the economy and in the functions of all these. But it's been my job to both put together those investment strategies, but then figure out how to make them work in the capital markets. Because the capital markets don't always do exactly what you think they're going to do. And this is a, uh, something that I'm concerned about, is what the Fed's moves may or may not do to the, to the bond market. Because um, remember, they're raising the Fed funds rate, but they're also reducing the size of their balance sheet at the same time, which is also having an impact, you know, on on uh, reducing the uh, the gas on the economy as well. So there's a lot of different pieces and parts here, but that's something I think investors may not be looking at as much that we're really taking a big look at, Jeremy. So in terms of this, the and you mentioned the the sort of quantitative tightening and balance sheet changes is is when you we and you've talked about how you're you had gone short duration and within the rest of the fixed income pies you know there's been some big moves in high yield and in other places any other things within fixed income portfolios that you think are worth talking about or or opportunities you think uh that are there for people today well, I think yields are obviously very attractive in credit right now. Um, yield being attractive means they haven't done so well this year because um, those, those spreads have widened. Yeah, and um, but you know you're looking at uh, pretty attractive yields in an environment where we're not really seeing defaults creep up incredibly. Um, we're still, I think, at or below historical average on defaults, and so and we we're coming from a very low base. 
So I think you know it's important, especially for long-term investors, to to look at at, at those places. I'm not sure I would necessarily um, take a significant overweight, especially in below investment grade credit, given the um, you know the uh, uh, recessionary environment we may be entering into. But I think that, that there's justification for continuing to hold those from a strategic perspective in your portfolio, Jeremy. Um, and I would concern people too. I mean, one of my mentors always said, you know, there's been uh, more people have died at chasing yield than at the edge of a sword. And, um, you know, you look at chasing yield right now, I think it's concerning. You're seeing some stuff and people are like, wow, you can get 10% yield on this or 11% yield. Remember, we believe in efficient markets. And there's a reason why those things are priced that way. Yeah. Well, let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Michael McCleary, who is the Chief Investment Officer, Valmark Financial Group. They they oversee portfolios of ETFs, uh, so ETF tops portfolios that we just sort of talked about, 20-year anniversary at the start of the show. Uh, Michael, within equities, uh, you know, we talked a lot about fixed income, the Fed. Uh, how, how do you rate the equity opportunities after this, this bear market we've had this year going into next year? What are the key issues? Where are valuations in your mind? How, how, how do you set, see the, the equity market developing? Well, Mark, equities are leading indicators, remember. So a couple things to think about there. Um, we saw this in July. The, the markets had developed this this rhetoric that the Fed was going to pause or, or slow down, and the markets had shot up in July. Obviously, um, Chairman Powell at the Jackson Hole speech had thrown water on that, and we saw the markets come back. Now we saw markets come back again in October, again on a rhetoric that, that the Fed was going to slow, and we saw the markets bump on uh, last Thursday and this Tuesday with good inflation numbers. And in each one of those scenarios, you see equities trying to get ahead of this. And I've described this whole environment, this whole cycle as this is going to continue to happen. Equities are going to try to be ahead of what's happening. They're going to get their wrist slapped and get pushed back a few times, and eventually it's going to stick, though. We don't know yet if 3577 was the bottom on October 12th. I mean, that'll be obviously time will tell. I think it's a, it's a strong possibility. Um, Dr. Ed Yardini, who we work a lot with, believes that's the case. Um, I, I think that it's definitely a possibility. But, um, you know, you have to um, – continue to, to, to look at that. Now, we are in this situation in how, how this has played on with equities. Some equities have come back. We were at very, very low valuations in some equities, but some equities have come back, and you have to be careful about which thing you're looking at. So one thing has been large cap, for example. People have asked me, Michael, when are we going to see a recovery in large cap? Well, large cap U.S. stocks, you know, S&P 500 was trading at over 20 times earnings coming into all this, and that's an overvaluation. So valuations have been bid up by investors. Now, um, those valuations did come down closer to historical averages, kind of at the depth of, of the equity markets. And now we're seeing those creep back up. So if you look at large cap growth stocks, they're trading at about 19.9 times forward earnings, which is the 85th percentile. If you look at every month going back to the last 20 years, we look at all of our valuation metrics, um, ranking them on a percentile basis every month over the last 20 years. It's about the 85th percentile. Value stocks are about 14.92 times earnings, which is also the 85th percentile. Um, now, I can get into details of value versus growth a little bit more if we have some time. But, um, you know, with large cap stocks, people say, when are they going to recover more? And I say, recover to what? Recover to being overvalued again? So I think that really for large cap stocks to do well, they are going to need a good economic environment. and They're going to need strong earnings. Earnings have to go in the fuel tank for large cap stocks to, to, to really appreciate from here. Now, on the other side... You've got small-cap stocks, mid-cap stocks, international, emerging markets. Small-cap stocks are trading about 13 times earnings right now, which is in the 7.6th percentile. 
Uh, Mid-cap, 13.7 is in the 15th percentile. EFA is at 12.3, which is the 33rd percentile. And EM is at 9.99, which is the 34th percentile. So one of the best indicators of long-term results, remember I said long-term, not short-term results, is the valuations of the stocks at the time you bought them. And so as a long-term strategic investor, I'm looking out and saying, I really like the opportunity, um, Jeremy, on small, mid, EFA, EM, given that the valuations you're entering in them at right now are very, very attractive historically, especially compared to large-cap U.S. stocks. This is why Michael and I get along so well. I mean, I've been talking, we've been talking about this exact issue, uh, and 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 we've been saying we think mid and small caps are attractive, and it's interesting to say, uh, well, on, you know, we've been pointing out a lot of very related, similar points on this small and mid being cheap versus their history, cheap versus large caps on a particular basis, and you know, do, do you think that? Now, I, part of it, my view also is that Fed is over tightening. It's going to create a slowdown next year. We haven't really talked about. Do you think how much of a recession you'll have? But do, do you think there's issues going into small caps coming with a re- potential, you know, the Fed being overly tight recession coming into next year? Uh, do, you, do you do you call for a recession next year? So, I always think about it like how many layers do you have to cut through? Okay, and when you're entering a stock that has a valuation that's it's already pretty low. There's only so much to give. And so, yes, we could enter a situation where earnings do start going down for a period of time here as we enter into this recession. We might have an earnings recession along with our economic recession. Uh, if that occurs, though, Jeremy, remember, these stocks are discounting out the next five, 10 years of earnings. So I think the, the markets can be smart enough to say, how long do we think this earnings dip is going to last? And if you're a longer term investor, even if stocks do pull back for a short period of time, again, looking back at, at what the long-term opportunity is there, I think there's a tremendous long-term opportunity if you enter at these valuations. So I would say if we do see it, I think it's more of a blip in the earnings um, landscape for, for small and mid. Um, something else that I think it's important here to talk about, especially with international, is the currency situation. So the dollar is at a near historical high. has come down recently. Um, just in the month of November, the EFA basket of currencies is uh, appreciated versus the dollar about 5%. So that means that investors that hold that EFA basket or hold an EFA ETF, for example, have had a 5% boost in their return simply by currency adjustments. And that is about 2.5% so far this month for emerging markets. So another thing I'm looking at as a longer-term investor is saying, all right, not only do we have this valuation opportunity, we also have the opportunity to just see the dollar come back out of the clouds. Now, we could have a whole different conversation about why in the short term the dollar is very attractive and you know, everybody wants the dollar. And I've, I've read a lot of articles about that in the last week or two. I'm sure you have. It's been a very popular topic. Um, some people almost from a pride perspective, I, it's like they're trying to uh, eloquently talk about American flags or talking about the dollar. But, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, I think it is an opportunity in the long run for, for international investors uh, you know, to maybe get that currency adjustment as well. A lot, of, a lot of people have talked about as a sentiment indicator. Once it comes on the magazine covers, like it was on Barrons and it was on Bloomberg Business Week, and uh, there's sentiment is people have said and 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 people have talked about the valuation of the dollar looks expensive versus just sort of like the uh, large caps versus small caps. People say purchase power parity 
uh, looks expensive or some of these other markets. So I, I can see that story as well. Now, China is one of those things that sort of is a wild card uh, for all these kind of things in global investments, global growth, and even the currency markets. What, what, what do you think is happening in China? How does that factor into any of your thinking about the opportunity overseas or, or just generally for the markets? So um, my mentor and I, who's a former chief investment officer of a, of a large insurance company, we used to argue about this constantly for, for tw- 20 years ago. And the argument was, look at the economic growth in some of the Asian countries, specifically China, and his assumption that this would translate into investment returns for investors. <clears throat> and I was concerned that economic growth – in an economy like China may not necessarily, or I say a regime like China, may not necessarily translate into investment returns. And I think we've seen some of that over the last 20 years, that we haven't really gotten all the juice out of the squeeze that, that we really thought we would get from an investment return perspective, um, as China's had incredible economic growth for the last 20 years. So even in that great period, we didn't get, I think, all the juice we wanted to get. Going forward, a few things happening. They just came out of their five-year Communist meeting, uh, Communist Party meeting. So President uh, Xi is is fully empowered uh, to continue on with with his uh, agenda, and they are struggling. And the environment he's coming into is that they are struggling with growth right now. Um, their growth numbers are coming down. Um, from a political perspective, he would like to clamp down on some things. I feel, and that's that's the rhetoric that he's he's shown, um, which brings their kind of a total economic model under question. And so we have some concern, you know, and I think it's important. There are some ETFs out there that do this, that really let you decide how much China you want to you want to uh, have. And I think that's really important um, to be able to dial in your specific exposure to China, because I think that it's it's a decision you have to take uh, after long valuation, because the valuations of China are, are reflecting this. They're they're relatively attractive, um, but. You know, are we really going to see – so there's a, maybe an investment opportunity just on a value play. But as I look at growth in China, I have significant concerns. And on top of all that is the real estate situation, which has been written about a ton, Jeremy. I'm sure you've talked about it on this show. Um, you know, there is there's significant concern there. And in the early stages of their pullback in real estate, what China is doing is the government's just injecting a bunch of cash. But you would assume that at some point the cash either runs out or the allocation runs – you know, there's only so much cash they can they – can, uh, inject into the real estate market because there is a significant, uh, maybe a, a once in a hundred year bubble there is, is, a, is a concern. We'll see if it plays out. Um, they're kind of like a mutual insurance company, though. They can lay problems out over a long period of time. <laughs> and uh, and so we'll see how that affects investors. But I, I think that it's important to take a hard look at China for because it's going to be different than the last 20 years. The wild It's such a wild card on everything. I mean, it, it's a... And your point on there's a growing amount of options to think about ex-China. Um, you, know, you, see, you see the geopolitical developments we've had with Russia this year and where people were forced to mark Russia down to zero. And, you know, for, for broad markets, it wasn't a big deal. Cause small weights in, in EM and EM tends to be small weights people portfolios. But and even, you know, people's allocation to EM may only be 10 percent and, and China's a third. But, you know, if you had to force something like that, they were to do something on the geopolitical stage, like with Taiwan, uh, that forced a, a real backlash. That That is one of the things you hear a lot about. Um, and uh, 
that that they that, that they seem inevitable that they want to reunify Taiwan and the question is how how's that all going to happen and 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 what, at what time is that could be one of those big open questions I think over the next decade to or maybe even you know next few years to see well Jeremy you brought up go. a good point there I mean they over the last twenty years they've grown because they took their cheap labor and sold it to the world that cheap labor pool is not there anymore so that that's one component and then also I think everybody is looking differently at. Uh, how they do business with China. And, and that's, that's a really hard thing, you know, for an economy to get, to deal with. And so I, I just think the picture looks much different for them in the next 20 years. And uh, you could argue the value play, at least where valuations are at right now. But I think the growth argument is, is, uh, is a tough one. We have Michael McCleary, CIO from Valmark Financial Group on with us for the hour. We're going to come back, talk about We've talked a lot about macro. We're going to talk some specific ideas, how to manage volatility uh, for next year, coming into the, as, as a really interesting solution uh, that Michael and I have worked on together. You're listening to Behind the Markets. Um, Michael, you created an index at Valmark uh, that really tries to help manage through more volatile environments. Talk about why you created the index, a little bit about the history, and, and how you started thinking about these different solutions to help try to manage around volatility. Well, I think this show, Jeremy, has been a good example of, of what my role is. You know, really looking at, we started with Dr. Siegel saying, all right, you know, how do we uh, um, look at the economy in general and how is that playing in? We also know, though, the economy is not the stock market. They're related, but they're, they're not the same thing. So then we have to take that economic information and say, how is this going to affect stocks? And we talked a little bit about that, Jeremy, as well, of, of how this is going to affect valuations and earnings and so forth. And then I think it's good to focus on the rest of our show here to talk about how we actually implement these and make investment decisions based off of the environment we're in. And when I look at that, I look at different tools. First of all, I, like, like you mentioned, I've been in the ETF business for 20 years. You know, I believe in, in uh, low-cost, uh, transparent, you know, direct investment of, of assets. Um, and I think ETFs are a tremendous vehicle for that. Just, just absolutely have, have changed the, the investment landscape. And along with ETFs and both equities and fixed income, something that I've worked with for most of my career is using derivatives for risk management. And that would be, we run some some uh, solutions with futures contracts. And then mainly what we'll talk about today is a, is a solution that we offer using options contracts. And options contracts enable us to really, uh, uh, for risk management, enter positions and, and really put guardrails, Jeremy, around the overall exposure of our portfolio. So we know what the worst case scenario is. We can, we can enter that level of control. And the specific strategy that we developed an index around um, and create our target range index really came from this idea that most investors aren't really designed to be equity investors. It's, you know, we're, we're many of us by nature are risk averse. I have met some people that are risk takers. Uh, I've got some good stories about people I've met over the years who are, you know, who, who, buck that trend and they are actual risk takers, the people that jump out of airplanes and do things like that. But um, most of us are risk averse. So the risk you take being an equity investor is not comfortable for us and something most of us would not do. Most of us, though, need to take equity risk or we'll never retire, right? So, so this is a, a difficult thing. And um, so I always look for solutions beyond equities. And for the last 40, 50 years, you know, really we talked about the balanced portfolio era and the diversification era. Uh, that what we've done is we've reduced the exposure to that equity risk by using bonds. So I talk about this, I, I could even talk to the show about a cocktail and it's like, you know, bo- equities are like the liquor and, you know, bonds are like the mixer. 
and bonds have been a good mixer for 40 years. But the problem is right now, um, bonds are, are, are kind of a, a tail wagging the dog. The mixer is having more impacts in some ways than equities. And so we looked at what different ways to put together a similar like a balanced exposure risk. And also, we wanted to find a true diversifier. So we've seen periods of times where, where stocks and bonds are moving together. This year is a pretty good example of that. Um, we know that's kind of an imperfect science. Um, and we wanted to find something that was going to look and act and smell differently than either just stocks and bonds or a, a, a uh, basic stock portfolio. And we found that with, by using options and, and putting together an option strategy that we, uh, we thought could add a lot of value. Um, and, and so in, in thinking through the trade-offs, I mean, options sound complicated, um, you know, and, 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 and it's, it's tricky. You got to have special approval to do it if you're trading options on your own. How, how did you think about the trade-offs of what uh, the, there's sort of a lot of different levers you can pull in, in, in using options and putting it into an index like you did? Talk about how the decision-making, what were you trying to achieve? What are, how, how did you think about the solution that you, that you worked on? So we were managing options for individual clients inside of Charles Schwab accounts, you know, just really going in there and, and buying individual options for people. We were buying what we call flex options. Um, uh, flex options provide some flexibility in how the actual contract is structured. Uh, still, your counterparty is still the exchange, but you, you get a, a flexibility in, in direct contract details. Um, the problem was is that it became prohibitive frankly, from, you know, the, the size of options contracts we were buying, we weren't buying enough options contracts on an individual client basis to, to make it work uh, for Charles Schwab. So they, they raised that minimum on how many we needed to buy. So that really burned me a little bit, Jeremy, not, not from a Charles Schwab perspective. I wasn't upset with them, but just that there's tools out there that can really help people to manage risk. They were pretty well prohibitive for, for even million dollar account, you know, or, or a couple million dollar account. And so we really wanted to look at a strategy that we could put into a fund structure, again, inside of a wrapper of an ETF, making it you know, tax efficient, transparent, low cost, all those things, tradable. And, and so we really uh, were, were drawn. That's how our conversation started, Jeremy, was saying, how can we take this strategy that has value? Because it's hard to do for an individual client, number one. A lot of advisors are simply not going to buy individual options for people. You know, a lot of people are not managing multi-billion dollars, you know, like, like you or I that are going to go out there and, and, and do the time and effort to do that. So how can people um, get a tool that gives them, gets them all the way, that we, we think all the way there, not just 99% of the way, we think all the way there through a transparent liquid ETF. And that, that's really where our conversations, it's, it started in this and, and, and I think have gone well. Yeah, so this Wisdom Tree Target Range Fund, uh, which is GTR, it it's designed to provide exposure to this Tops Global Equity Target Range Index, which is the index that Valmar created. Uh, and you know, it, 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 I guess Michael, from the perspective of the exposures and the outcomes, when we talk about target range, you know, it's using the specific words, and it's a lot of this stuff is what's mandated to put in there, but. It, in terms of the spirit of the methodology of what is a target range, what do those terms mean? What, what kind of ranges are, are you targeting in your index that, that, that you designed? So first of all, um, we have not, we did not create the first options based ETF. I mean, there are some, there are other options based ETFs out there. Um, we're still in, I think the first or second inning of options based ETFs. So, so we are early in the phase, but what I saw was, a couple things with the first generation of options-based ETFs uh, designed for risk management. Um, 
And one piece was that a lot of them have, and these are great. I love the choices that they provide, but they're more designed to cut down on, on, on the, the base level of volatility. So that first 10% of loss or 15% of loss, you don't participate in that, but then you participate in all the loss beyond that. And they call this a buffer type strategy. And those are great, and they can be for a lot of people, and they can be good portfolio tools. But for us, we, we felt like we wanted to create something that had more of a floor-type mentality so that by we would create an option strategy that you knew what your worst-case scenario was. <clears throat> and your worst-case scenario was losing um, some percentage, and then beyond that, you were not going to participate in losses. And that's where, with our index, we decided to target a 15% 12-month loss between the third week in January to the next third week in January. And so – um, so that was kind of one of the first things we did is we said, what's the basic idea? We want to create this, this, this law, this worst case scenario on a 12 year base or 12 month basis to do that. We also do, uh, sell some, sell some call options and, and we'll talk a little bit more about this works, but to earn some revenue and offset the cost of those, that 15% floor. Um, so it creates a, a little bit of a cap in returns on a one year basis, but we've, we've figured out, I think a pretty good way to work past that by adjusting that cap throughout the year. Now, 15% for protection on the bottom, but what do we put that 15% protection on? If we put it on just the S&P 500, then somebody else would have to say, well, if I'm taking money out of my balance portfolio and I put it into this, then I got to realize I'm getting, I'm changing my underlying allocation as well, not just entering into this risk management decision. And we found a lot of people had diversified portfolios. So it made sense for us to put this 15% protection around an entire diversified portfolio. So if you look at the underlying exposure to our, our, our ETF, it's about 50% in the S&P 500, about 20% in IWM, which is the Russell 2000, small mid-cap, about 20% in EFA international stocks, and about 10% emerging markets. And I think that's a general allocation similar to what we use in our, our TOPS programs we manage with ETFs, but it, an allocation I think fits in with a lot of folks. Uh, to have that that underlying piece. So what we do, Jeremy, is we put in place on each of those four ETFs, the S&P 500, Russell, IFA, and EDM, we put in place a 15% what's called bull call spread. Okay, And what that means is on the third week in January when options reset, reset we go out, we buy a 15% in the money call option on SPY, and we simultaneously sell a 15% out of the money call option on SPY. And we create that target range, that target range of a 15% plus minus return over the next 12 months. Now, I don't like to be controlled. I don't like to be uh, limited. I don't like the idea of uh, some of these other products that are out in the marketplace might have a 10% cap for a year or what have you. I don't like the idea of even saying 15% is the best you can do. So what we did is we also added a feature and we call a restrike event. And every month except for December and January, we will go out and look. And if any of those ETFs have gone up by more than 15% from the starting point, we will do a restrike, which means we sell out of the, the original bull call spread for that ETF and we buy a new one. And that means, so let's say you went from a 100 to $120 for the underlying ETF. 120 would be our new base. And then we would do 15% plus and minus off 120 for the remainder of the 12 months to the next coming January. So by doing this, this will never happen. But you could get, I mean, if things lined up perfectly, you could conceptually get over 200% rate of return in a year. You know, with, so you know, it gives you that opportunity to have way more upside and also to lock in that downside as the markets are going up. 
So we think it makes you know a lot of sense for people um, to have this type of payout. Yeah, no, it's very interesting uh, as a, as a concept, um, and, and 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 you could say the market environment now with volatility is like exactly the type of market you think about it. Uh, let me just reintroduce. I guess we're talking with Michael McClary, head of Valmark Financial Group, about uh, an index. Right now, we're talking about an index that his team created. We licensed it for one of our ETFs, uh, Michael. So the the let, let's talk about. You mentioned there's a lot of things specific to options in this type of strategy that that's probably new for people who are just learning about them. You mentioned the annual payout and the sort of these resets that occur. You mentioned the January to January. So we're coming up on the January. You're you're sort of two months away from the annual reset what what how does that how should people think about what's happened this year in the markets where it is uh and then as i think forward to the next year and the reset uh as, as i think about the the timing to get into something like this and how it could manage through volatility uh next year well i think it's great because uh timing is great i should say because we look at the comments dr siegel made with comments that i made um you made as well jeremy but ultimately None of us know exactly what's going to happen in the next six months. <clears throat> People want to be exposed to equities, but they don't want to take on full equity risk. And so I think the strategy we put together gives people you know, the opportunity to get into the market without taking full equity risk. And so if it's somebody that right now is sitting in cash, if it's, if it's an advisor that, that's doing a dollar cost averaging strategy, and they say, well, you know, I want a dollar cost average. Well, where's the money sitting? Well, you're dollar cost averaging. You're sitting in cash predominantly. Well, why not instead invest 100% in this and then dollar cost average out of this? You know, because you're in the market, but you have, you have some downside protection. Um, if you've got people towards the end of the year who are wanting to do some tax loss harvesting, nothing's worse than doing tax loss harvesting and then going into something else that just takes. And so, you know, the opportunity to get into that right now um, is, is also there. Because what our ETF does is we have a tool, and it's on the Wisdom Tree site. If you go to the GTR uh, ETF on, side, on the Wisdom Tree site, you can look at our tool. And our tool shows you exactly how much um, downside is in the ETF between now and the next coming January um, and how far each of these ETFs are from their what's called their floor, their long, their long call strike. And so you can kind of know what your experience is going to be between now and January and then, and then past that. So if you enter right now, you know that you know you don't have a significant amount of downside. Where our exposure is is towards the bottom part of our our floor right now, um, and uh, so that 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 gives you the opportunity to get in without a significant amount of downside between now and January. We have designed this as a long term holding though. So the the main goal is we tell people this is what your experience is going to be between now and January. But really, the goal is to get into the position to hold it for years and years and years, which, is, which you can do. And so as you go through the January reset, what's going to happen is we're going to get out of the, the, the current call spread because that's going to expire, and we're going to buy a new one. And so if you enter now, you're going to have a you know, relatively attractive payoff between now and January, the third week in January. And then once the third week in January comes, you'll reset on a new plus 15, minus 15 full call spread payoff on each of those four ETFs. So I think, um, you know, it's a good time to, to really look at this. And I, I think, Jeremy, that, again, as I, I see people using this, one of the major uses I see is that they have a diversified portfolio already. And people have always been looking for, for better diversifiers. Maybe it's natural resources or private investments or all these different things. 
many times those diversifiers bring on so much risk that they end up offsetting the risk diversification benefits of the holding itself. We're talking about putting something in here that's a diversifier. It's going to act and look and smell a little different, but it's, you're not adding significant risk. The overall risk of GTR is about the same overall uh, historical uh, for our index. The historical standard deviation for our index back to 2007 is 11%. Historical standard deviation for my moderate growth portfolio is about 12%. So it's, it's got a similar overall risk. Um, of kind of a balanced or moderate growth type allocation, but it's going to again what's provide the average those diversification on that? benefits. What's the average uh, equity? That's a seventy thirty. Is the that modern yeah. growth portfolio? So if, if people were thinking of like a sixty forty and they wanted to fund, you know, ten percent more into equities, you know, this is one way, you know, or this it represents that type of uh, sort of balanced model. Is is one of the ways that you've thought about that, and in, in, in a way to increase equities without the full risk of a of a real equity solution. Yeah, and I see people do. I mean, it depends how simplistic you want to be. I mean. Um, a simple solution would be maybe a third in equities, a third in bonds, and a third in GTR. You know, as an example, now you can be more risky on the equity side. You can dial down the bonds. You can dial up the bonds, you know, whatever you want to do there. But if you're in that scenario, let's just think through this real quick. If equities go down significantly, you know, past the 15% floor, GTR is going to outperform, okay, because it's got that protection in there. It should outperform. Um, in the environment we saw recently, um, bonds also you know, took a hit. So GTR could also potentially outperform bonds. Um, if equities go up significantly, you're going to underperform a little bit in GTR, um, but you're going to outperform bonds because you've got your equities is the only fuel in the engine for GTR. It's not have to rely upon bonds, um, but you're going to, you know, you're getting that equity exposure and you're going to outperform bonds. If you stay dead flat in GTR, um, typically you're going to underperform stocks and bonds a bit because the options don't pay dividends. Um, you're going to get some interest in GTR because we have collateral. It's, it's earning yield, um, you know, and those yields have gone up to 3 4% now. So you do get some collateral yield there. Um, but ultimately, um, you're dealing with a position that, again, is going to do, do better when other things are, are, are struggling and still participate in the markets. And I, I just think it's, it's kind of a, you know, look up the dictionary diversifier, and I think it, it really fits in well. I also think that it fits in well with the mentality for investors, that investors really like the ability to know what level of risk they're taking. Uh, we're in our final two minutes. As you think about it, we've had a very good wide-ranging conversation on how you know the, the index that Valmar created and, and how you thought about using it in portfolios. Any sort of closing final thoughts as we, we wrap up today? What, what, what people you'd like to, to reach out to Valmar for any help with what they're doing or any other final comments on, on the markets here? Well, I think we're in a very precarious situation in the markets. Um, obviously, everybody likes it. And we have a little bit of an equity relief rally, which we've had here in the last week. And um, I'm a stock for a long run guy. I mean, that's, you know, Jeremy, you and I probably would not be able to get along if that were not the case. Um, so I do believe in, in uh, having a significant slug in stocks uh, for the long run. But I have a saying that don't ever mention return without mentioning risk in the same sentence. And for many investors, if they truly understand what they're, they're doing, they need to pay attention to the risk side of the equation. And from a risk-adjusted return perspective, um, you're getting a – we feel like we've designed with our index that, that uh, is, is tracked by the Wisdom Tree ETF. We feel like we have 
created a very good risk return payoff opportunity for investors. And it's something that they should really take a look at. Well, uh, I've been I've known Michael probably now for a decade. I don't remember the first year we met, but uh, we've known each other a very long time. It's been a pleasure working with him on this index. I fully agree with his conclusion early that we're only first or second innings of option strategies. I have a lot of interest in doing a lot more in that space, and it's good to see uh, some some resonation with with clients that these are these solutions are resonating. So, Michael, it's been a pleasure working with you. Uh, thanks so much for joining us here on Behind the Markets. Um, you can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast um, every week. Thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, Chris Tukes, sound engineer. Have a great week, everybody. Investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund before investing. To obtain a prospectus containing this and other important information, call 866-909-9473 or visit wisdomtree.com. Read the prospectus carefully before you invest. There are risks associated with investing, including possible loss of principal. The fund is actively managed and implements a strategy similar to the methodology of the TOPS Global Equity Target Range Index, the index, which seeks to track the performance of a cash-secured call spread option strategy. There can be no assurance that the index or the fund will achieve its respective investment objectives or that the fund will successfully implement its investment strategy. Moreover, while the fund seeks to target returns within a prescribed range, thereby minimizing downside investment loss, there can be no guarantee that investors in the fund will experience limited downside protection, particularly short-term investors, investors that seek to time the market, and or investors that invest over a period other than the annual period. The fund's option strategy will subject fund returns to an upside limitation on returns attributable to the assets underlying the options. The fund's investment and options may be subject to volatile swings in price influenced by changes in the value of the underlying ETFs or other reference assets. Return on an options contract may not correlate with the return of its underlying reference asset. The fund may utilize flex options to carry out its investment strategy. Flex options may be less liquid than standard options, which may make it more difficult for the fund to close out of its flex option position at desired times and prices. The fund use of derivatives will give rise to leverage and derivatives can be volatile and may be less liquid than other securities. As a result, the value of investment in the fund may change quickly and without warning, and you may lose money. Investment exposure to securities and instruments traded in non-US developing or emerging markets can involve additional risks relating to politi- political, economic, or regulatory conditions not associated with investments in the U.S. securities and more developed international markets. These and other factors can make investments in the fund more volatile and potentially less liquid than other types of investments. Please read the fund's prospectus for specific details regarding the fund risk profile. Wisdom Tree funds are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC, in the U.S. Foresight Fund Services, LLC, is not affiliated with the entities mentioned. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.